It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. Series entitled The War Scroll, The Final Battle Between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. In the first three, we've been covering just the first column of this scroll, believe it or not. And we have covered the identification according to the scroll, and I believe in perfect harmony with the scriptures. And if I could take that even further, I believe in perfect harmony to how these nations are expressed throughout the world right now. We were last closing up the identification of the sons of light and we were talking about the third line in this first column of the war scroll in which it says, according to all their troops, when the exiles, the sons of light, returned from the wilderness of the peoples to encamp in the wilderness of Jerusalem. And then it goes on to say after the battle and blah, blah, blah. So we were talking about the wilderness of the peoples. It's my belief, it's my perspective that in this gathering of the exiles in the latter days, that we are going to more than likely go from one place to another as everybody collectively at some point begins the journey back to the land. If we're scattered all over the world, obviously this is something that's going to take quite some time. How long, I do not know. But I do believe that we will stay in various places as we head back to the land. And at one point we will be collectively, in the wilderness of the peoples. I believe that to be somewhere outside of Jerusalem, probably south of Jerusalem, perhaps the Negev. But either way, we will all, just like the scriptures say we will, eventually all gather collectively in the Lamb. This just happens to be the way it's expressed here in the War Scroll as well, especially when it gets down to the seventh and final battle in which God is going to intervene himself. Now remember that the scrolls teach that the sons of light will win three, the sons of darkness will win three of these battles, and that this will take uh, place over a course of 40 years with Sabbath rest in between, and that the Father will intervene in the last battle. So to me, I guess one of the things it's trying to say to us is that without God, the sons of light, appear to be really no different than the sons of darkness. The reason why I say that is because they both equally win three battles each. We all know the significance of the number seven in Scripture. And so there happens to be seven battles that will be fought. We also can see the significance of three in Scripture. Three battles won by the sons of light. Three battles won by the sons of darkness, making a total of six. So when men are fighting against men, six being the number of man we have a a, a total of six here. But this whole thing gets completed from God's point of view when he steps in in the seventh battle. Even though three has a a very clear meaning in in our culture. Length, width, and breadth, for example. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Messiah taught us that heavenly things are understood by our belief and understanding of the earthly things. And so in the earth we see 
three dimensions to our visible world. Uh, time is represented by past, present, and future. There are three persons in grammar. There's three degrees of quality. And in, in school, we learned about solid liquids and gases and about animals, vegetable and mineral kingdoms. And, and three is always used uh, with the idea of completing something in some sort of earthly totality. Uh, um, for example, even as parents, we said, okay, I'm going to give you to the count of three. And we say, are you ready? One, two, three, go, and so on and so forth. So you can see three all over the place in Scripture. And we have this also with these uh, writings of the Essenes in the War Scroll. So it's my opinion that as all 12 tribes are gathered in the wilderness, I believe this is what the Scriptures teach as well, that this is the time when these uh, battles, these final battles, will take place against the sons of darkness. And the sons of darkness, once again, are removed from the sons of light. But it also seems to reveal, if these things are true, that not all of those gathered in the wilderness are doing the fighting. It seems, even though we have some lacunas here, remember what that means, that means some sections that are missing or or torn off or something, and we don't have all uh, that we should in our insight into this battle that's taking place, but it seems like those of Levi, Benjamin, and Judah are the ones that are actually going to go do the fighting. And when they're all done, they go back to the wilderness of Jerusalem, which is where I believe the actual wedding takes place. Why then? Because the battles are over and we do not have uh, the restrictions about someone being married, having a, a, a wedding ceremony and then going to war, but rather the war and then the wedding ceremony. Because the Bible seems to be uh, replete with battles being fought by his people in the last days. And of course, most of us have come to understand that we are very much a part of who his people are in the latter days. Instead of traditionally, we've separated ourselves, meaning we, meaning the house of Israel, the uh, the Gentiles who believe in Yeshua since the crucifixion, are all somehow set aside in this special entity that's going to be removed and taken up above all these things. And it's, it's the Jews, if you will, they're going to be fighting these battles in the latter days. But the scriptures indicate clearly that it's his people, his own people that are fighting. And it seems to always entail these people who are in the New Covenant. Those people from the house of Israel, those people from the house of Judah. Let's go give some examples here. In Obadiah 18, Obadiah 18, let's back up one verse to 17. And it says, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Yaakov shall possess their possessions. And the house of Yaakov shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they that kindle in them and devour them, and so on and so forth. And there shall be no more remaining of the house of Esau. Now that's exactly what's being talked about in the war scroll here. They are completely annihilated. I believe all these are under the umbrella of the God, if you will, of Cain, Ishmael, and Esau, represented in the paradigm of Esau, because remember, it's Esau who very clearly said, as soon as dad's dead, that would be Isaac, speaking to Israel, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And that's what this is all about. And then it goes on in verse 19, it says, And they of the Negev, now there's your desert, there's your wilderness, shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the Shephelah and the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Virtually all of these characters are in our war scroll here. Isaiah 29.8 It shall be even as when a hungry man dreams and beholds he eats 
but he wakes and his soul is empty. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he drinks, but he wakes and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. And then it goes on to say in 31.4, Isaiah 31.4, For thus hath Yahweh spoken unto me, as the lion or the younger lion roars in, on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, will he not be afraid of their voice, or, nor abase himself for the noise of them? So shall Yahweh of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Once again, referring, I believe, to what the Essenes call this final battle, when Yahweh himself does it. And of course, that's the nature of Armageddon in the book of Revelation as well. It's not actually thought. <clears throat> Revelation 16, verse 14 says, For they are the spirits of demons, working miracles, that they go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then it basically finishes, or begins the finishing process in Revelation 17, 14, when it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of Lords, and King of Kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful, and so on and so forth. And we'll discuss that in a little more as we can wrap this thing up at the end. But I want to visit one more time a passage, or a couple passages in Ezekiel with respect to the wilderness of the peoples that's in this third line. In Ezekiel 20, verse 33. As I live, saith Yahweh Elohim, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and will gather you out of the countries in which you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there will I enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I enter into judgment with you, saith Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. Two quick things here. Number one, he's the one that's going to do it. Just like he delivered them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, so much so that when they got into the lands that they were to conquer, the people had already heard of these things when they got there because his mighty hand was shown and revealed throughout all the nations. The same will be true in this future one that will happen. And so the gathering of the peoples out of the place where all scattered is done by him and his power is shown. I do not think it is a picture of people sneaking out of the country one at a time on airplanes. I don't see how his mighty hand is shown that way. I think that when we get to the place where the Pharaoh does not let us go, that's an indication that the Father's about to deliver us. Then it goes on uh, to say that I will cause you to pass under the rod. And will bring you unto the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me, and I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. And as for you, O house of Israel, thus saith Yahweh Elohim, go serve everyone as idols, and hereafter, if you will not hearken unto me, but will pollute my holy name, no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel saith Yahweh Elohim, there shall all the house of Israel, all of those in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your uh, oblations with all your holy things. Now that mountain is also referred to in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. You're familiar with this verse. In chapter 2, the same place, which is where he's going to do this, 
is where it says, And many people shall go and come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Yaakov, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. But all those who rebel against that, remember there were these violators of the covenant, they were not with them, they're actually fighting against them. He's going to purge out from among you the rebels. I believe there are those who are physically, if you will, of the seed or the woman of Revelation chapter 12, but they have turned against, they have violated the covenant, they have violated the Torah, and he says he's going to purge them out. So it's going to be a remnant of her seed in the latter days that are going to be involved in these battles and restoration and being back on the mountain and the wilderness in Jerusalem and the wedding and so forth. And they will be those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua. Okay, let's move on because I have a lot more information to put out here. We were in line number three. And then line number four starts out like this. It starts out with a lacuna. Remember what that is. Section, they're not sure what it is. And so it's just just uh, indicated by just a blank space. It says, of the Katim in Egypt. Now, we don't know who was of the Katim. Apparently, someone or something of the Katim in Egypt is going to march out with great fury to wage war against the kings of the north. Now, remember, we've already discussed in detail the Katim, who they are. My belief that they are a picture of the west, particularly the western leg of the Roman Empire, which I believe is a, is a part of Rome and Greece, Greece representing the west, and so all kingdoms of the west. Whoever it is, is going to be some of those kingdoms of the west that are in Egypt. Now, we have two expressions of Gatim here. The Gatim of Ashur, or Assyria, Syria, which would include Iraq and so forth. And we have the Gatim in Egypt that are represented as the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, traditionally, these kings of the south and kings of the north are fighting against each other historically. I believe this is a direct reference, once again, to Alexander the Great, who being from the west, Greek, but... He split up his kingdom and when, his, when he died. It was separated into his four generals. Primarily, the two most popular ones are Seleucid, who was the king, if you will, of the north. That would be uh, Assyria and, and th- those kingdoms north and east of Israel, if you will. And then there was the king of the south, and that was represented by Egypt. So these countries represent more than just one country. The king of the north represents those of the north and including those of the east. The king of the south represents Egypt and those of the west as well. One kingdom controlled by Seleucid, the other controlled by Ptolemy. In Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 3, we give an account of this when it says, And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. And not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which be he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those. So in other words, it's saying it won't be his direct descendants. And that's exactly the way it was with Alexander the Great's children. None of his children, none of his descendants were the ones who took over this kingdom. It was something other than those. Verse 5, And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And on and on it goes between these two kingdoms represented by the king of the north and the king of the south, even though they include those from the east and the west. 
And then when you get to verse 11, Daniel 11, verse 11, it says, And the king of the south shall be moved with anger, and shall come forth and fight with him, that is, the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. This is exactly what we're reading here in the War Scroll. Meanwhile, let me go ahead and finish this column before we go into some of the details, some of the details of the priestly orders and the blowing of the trumpets and the banners. Column 4, I read to you. Column 5 starts out saying, It is a time of salvation for God's people and a time of dominion for all the men of his lot, but of everlasting destruction for all the lot of Belial. There shall be panic. So salvation for the sons of light, but everlasting destruction for the sons of darkness. Line 6, The sons of Japheth, a share shall fall down, and there shall be no rescue for it, for the Katim's dominion shall come to an end. These are the sons of Japheth, according to Genesis 10. Wickedness being subdued without a remnant, neither shall there be an escape for the sons of darkness. Line 8. But the sons of righteousness shall shine unto all the uttermost ends of the world, going on to shine till the completion of all the appointed times of darkness. At the appointed time of God, his exalted greatness shall shine to all the ends of... And then there's another gap there. Line 9. For peace and blessing, glory, joy, and long life for all the sons of light. On the day of Katim's fall, there shall be clash and fierce carnage before the God of Israel. For this is the day he has appointed long ago for a destructive war against the sons of darkness. On this day, they shall clash in a great carnage, the congregation of divine beings and the assembly of men, the sons of light and the lot of darkness shall fight each other. And then there's something uncertain there. The might of God with the uproar of a large multitude and the war cry of divine beings and men on the day of calamity. This is a time of tribulation. Once again, this is a time of tribulation. And the sons of light and the sons of darkness are in the midst of the tribulation. And you also notice there's divine beings among them. This is not the... uh, particular study to to, uh, address that, but apparently uh, there are angelic beings that are also involved in this calamity. It says, goes on, the people of whom God redeems, all of their tribulations, none was comparable to this. Because of its hastening towards the end of an everlasting redemption, in the day of their war against the Katim, there will be carnage. During the war, the sons of light shall strengthen for three lots and smite wickedness. And for three lots, the army of Belial shall gird itself for the return of the lot of... And then there's something unknown there. Then it finishes with, there shall be skirmishing battalions to melt the heart and the might of God, supporting the heart of the sons of light. Lot. During the seventh lot, the great hand of God shall subdue the angels of his dominion, and all the men of the Holy One shall appear in truth for the destruction of the sons of darkness. And that is basically column one. Now, when we get to column two, I'm just going to give you the gist of it. It's basically all about the reorganization of temple worship and the program for the 40 years of war. And once again, six battles, three won by each one over a period of four years with some um, Sabbath rest in between those. It's also apparent that at this time, first century B.C. approximately, there was a a 364-day calendar at that time. It says that the there were 26 priestly courses divided up into a 52-week period, each priest having two courses. And so that would be a 364-day calendar. Now remember, we're just going to cover the gist of here as we close this out. Uh, the bottom line is there are 12 Roshim, 12 Roshim chiefs or leaders that serve 
Once again, one sign assigned for each of the 12 tribes. So we have the 12 tribes back in the land. Apparently, even though they're still out in the wilderness with respect to this battle, but there appears to be a temple only because there is a reorganization of the temple worship. Uh, they take up their stands for their festivals, for their new moons, and for their Sabbaths. So they apparently the festivals and the new moons of the Sabbaths are all in operation at this time. We also know that they, are the, and they, they honor the Shemitah. In other words, they're, they're not going to war in the seventh year. And one more thing is going to become abundantly apparent is that those who are actually doing the fighting and in the leadership and out on the front lines, if you will, are all those who are 50 years old and, and older. 50 years old and older. Now, that, that rings bad for someone like myself. <laughs> but apparently all the younger ones, we're getting more detail in just a few minutes, are the ones that are behind the scenes. They take the younger ones and put it behind the scenes. And the older men, the more wise and more mature men, are actually involved in the fighting there. And remember, it's not everybody. Not everybody goes to the war. They come out from the wilderness of the peoples to fight the battles. Then in column three and four, we have some details on the trumpets and banners. There's a lot of details on a lot of trumpets. There is a seventh trumpet that is blown in the midst of this, but there is a whole bunch of trumpets and banners that these guys are carrying. And these trumpets are not shofars. They are katsosara uh, in Hebrew, katsosara, which is silver trumpets. Uh, and it's clearly based upon Numbers chapter 10, verse Two, and they have trumpets of alarm, trumpets of ambush, trumpets of pursuit, gathering, summoning, enrollment. Uh, they have the trumpets of the men of renown, and, and they have one called the trump of the fixed times of God, the trumpets of redrawal, and so forth. And on the banner, which is at the head of the whole people, you shall write, it says, the people of God, and the name of Israel and Aaron, and the names of the twelve tribes are written on this banner. But it is led by a phrase that says, the people of God. It goes on to say in columns 5 and 6, is all about the particular weapons and movements. They go into great detail on how these things are lined out, the, the, the weapons, the way they're designed and so forth. And that's why when you read the design, uh, historians know that these were all Roman uh, ways, uh, Roman weaponry and so forth. And that's why some people conclude that that these uh, Essenes, these writers of the War Scroll, were waiting on a battle simply with the Romans. I believe all the other indications here, and I'm not alone in this belief, is it was much more broad than that. That this was something that they could see involving not just a local area battle. That seems to be significant to me. And one of the lines says, and on the, there's another lacuna there, of the prince of the whole congregation, the nasi of the whole hayida, of the whole congregation, they shall write the name of Israel and Levi and Aaron and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel according to their generations. He goes on to describe in detail the way they should march how many should be in each line, and of course there's sevens all over the place here, and the precise design and material of the weapons, which once again seems to be Roman, Romanesque-like. Then in columns 6 through 9, yes, all of these columns, it gives the age of the soldiers and it gives some details about the camp. It, it says that the men of rule should be 40 to 50 years of age, 
Those who are ordering the camp should be 50 to 60 years of age. The officers are all 40 to 50 years of age. And those, once again, who are doing the background work are 25 to 30 years of age. It doesn't seem to mention anybody under the age of 25. And, of course, there are not women fighting these battles. And, of course, no blind or crippled or lame and or permanent blemishes and so on and so forth. Uh, and, of course, uncleanliness as well. Now, the reason this is mentioned is the same reason this is mentioned in the scriptures. Because the priests were more, there's more things that the priests did than just a minister in the tabernacle and so forth. They were very much involved with what was going on. And so they needed people at their best. They needed men who were who were priests and especially fighters. Uh, to, to be 100%, and that's in a, from a physical point of view, nothing that would cause any problems out on the battlefield in any way. And of course, from a spiritual point of view, they needed to be clean, because uncleanness has all kinds of ramifications on the battlefield. And they also have, as I said uh, earlier, they seem to have divine beings with them, at this point, I don't know exactly what that means. It's not melach, it's, it's not angels, but it seems to be referring to, to angelic beings that are also with them in this battle. And the priests will be with them there to continually blow the trumpets until they have thrown them seven times. Now, once again, it does mention that throw them means to blow them, to sound them seven times. Times And it could be that what they're saying is that these various uh, uh, collection of trumpets that are blown, collectively they blow them all seven times. And they conclude on the seventh time. Now when we get to columns 10 through 14, that's five entire columns that are devoted to nothing but prayer and thanksgiving for his deliverance. And of course when you read these columns, you see very clearly that they sound very much like um, a combination of the Psalms and the Siddur. Some of you are familiar with the with the Siddur. The, the language is very similar to kind of a mix of those two things. Uh, who is like you, O God of Israel, and so forth. And there's many references to the God of the circuits and the God of the cycles of creation. This is also, now you can see why I would kind of be attracted. Another reason why I'd be attracted to this scroll is because they uh, attribute these uh, attributes of God, that he's the God of the circuits, and they constantly refer to the cycles of creation. Let me read a couple examples of these prayers and thanksgiving. It says, The battle is yours, and the strength is from you, not ours. Neither our power nor the force of our hands have done worthily, except by your power and with the vigor of your great worth. So have you told us long ago. Now listen to what they say. Saying, a star shall rise from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and it shall smite the forehead of Moab and destroy all the sons of Seth. Now, there's a couple of interesting things in this uh, short passage here. One is their quote, their virtual quote from Numbers chapter 24, starting in verse 16, we'll read. And he has said, who heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, who saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. So we have the context of Edom being a possession here. This is clearly a prophecy which these 
uh, writers of the War Scroll are directly attributing to this day of the final battles of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. And someone's going to rise up from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise up from Israel, and it shall smite the forehead of Moab and destroy all the sons of Seth, which is basically what happens at the end of the battle of the War Scroll. Now, what's interesting is destroy all the sons of Seth, or literally, sheet. Now, I believe this is associated for with Esau for a very good reason, because one of the attributes of Esau that we've covered very, thir- very thoroughly in our Tares Among the Wheat series, and that is his association with thorns. Thorns seems to be directly associated with Esau. Now, it just so happens that not only is the meaning of Seth, appointed and so forth, we're talking about Seth, the son of Adam and so forth, but it also has a meaning of thorns. And it literally means something set in a place. Appointed, literally set in a place. Now when it comes to agriculture and the, and the, and the things of the field and so forth, what would be set in the place out in the field is the thorns or the thistles. And they are, as far as the field is concerned, the consistent enemies of the wheat all throughout scripture. That's why Yeshua tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. The contrast in the field is wheat and tares and thorns and thistles and stubble and chaff and all those worthless items of the field. Now the word there is literally shayit, which comes from sheet, which means to put or place. One of the very first occurrences of this word, the sons of of Seth here, which is the way it is in your English, is in Genesis 3.15 when it says, And I will put enmity between the two seeds. There will be something that will be placed between the two seeds. I will put there. And it says that this this star of Jacob that rises out of Jacob will destroy all the sons of Seth. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, I believe this is a reference to the sons of God that fell in Genesis chapter 6. There's all kinds of arguments and discussions, and this is not the place to do it, over whether that's talking about demonic beings coming down and, and having intercourse with daughters of men and producing giants in the earth and so forth. And I personally, I do not believe that that's what that is talking about. I believe that there's a direct reference to mixing Ways of the Messiah with the ways of Belial. The idea of mixing or mingling, I believe, is consistent throughout Scripture. And that's what it produces. And those who come forth from the sons of Seth, who fell, fallen ones, Nephilim, will in the end be destroyed. And that's who it's referring to. But I think it's interesting that it's thorns. Let me tell you why. This word sheet is also the Hebrew word for thorns. Let me go through a few examples. Isaiah 5, verse 6 and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dig, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. It's that Isaiah 5 is talking about the vineyard, that he planted grapes and so forth, and strange clusters and strange fruit came up in Isaiah chapter 5. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, 23 through 25, And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. It shall be even for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all the hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall come not the fear of briars and thorns, and so on and so forth. That word there is sheet, the same base, the same word used here for the sons of Set, which also means thorns. I just note, want you to notice the context associated with these sons of Seth. In other, in other words, those who come forth from those who mix. 
In Isaiah 9.18, it says, For wickedness burns as a fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting of smoke. In 10.17, it happened to all be in Isaiah here. Why? Because Isaiah is the, the book, more than any other book, that consistently points you back to the beginning to understand what's going on at the end. I find that not a coincidence that this would be the the major whole scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the very one that consistently takes you back to the beginning in order to stand the, understand the end. In Isaiah 10.17 it says, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And finally, in Isaiah 27, 4, it says, Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I will go through them, and I will burn them all together. Once again, referring to the fact that the Father is going to supernaturally intervene in this final battle, with the result being the tares are removed from the wheat, leaving the wheat behind. Okay, moving on, because we're still in columns 10 through 14, which are the prayers and the thanksgiving. Another comment in the midst of this, and I quote, is, You will act against them, Belial and the seven nations of vanity, as against the Pharaoh and the officers of his chariots in the Red Sea. Once again, a clear connection going back to the time of the Exodus they consistently refer to in this apocalyptic battle in the end of days, saying Belial and the seven nations of vanity. Now, I believe, it's my opinion, and I'm going to, to quote here, but um, you can um, can look this up yourself if you will, if, there, if there's something else that you think this could be. But when they were in their wa- wilderness wanderings, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When Yahweh your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and hath cast out many nations from before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when Yahweh your God shall deliver them from before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them, and shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them." I believe that this is a reference to the consistent pattern. Remember, these nations, even though they existed at the time of the Exodus, the very nature of of these nations is trying to show us the consistent cyclical pattern of those who behave like that, who are always out to kill or destroy Israel. And the cost of the question remains is, who is Israel? The sons of light are also defined in this, including the wilderness of the peoples. All those who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all going to be the enemy. You may pretend that the enemy right now going on in the land, this is just between the Muslims, Islam, Palestinians, and people leaning against the wailing wall with black hats and curly sideburns davening back and forth. You may want to deceive yourself into thinking that that's who it's against. But if you are following and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, then you are fellow citizens with the saints, one Torah for the homeborn and for the uh, stranger and sojourner, and you're all the children of Israel. We are all the enemy because ostensibly what I'm saying here is in this end battle, it will be against the Sons of one seed and the sons of the other seed. There aren't other, there aren't a third and fourth seed. There's only two. 
the seed of the woman and the seed of the seed of the enmity in the end. Then it goes on in this scroll to say that um, after the victory, the sons of light will return and sing the hymn of the return, the hymn of return. Now, of course, we know that after the victory at the Red Sea, they crossed the Red Sea and they sang the song of Moses. And according to this apocalyptic battle, they're going to finish after, uh, when they're done after the battle, they're going to sing a hymn. And of course, we know in Revelation chapter 15, it says, and they shall sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Yahweh God Almighty, just and true are your ways, thou King of the saints. Every one of these singing a hymn when the battle is over. And then it goes on to say that Sheol shall be burned in a fire. They'll take Sheol and throw it into a fire. Well, gee whiz, there seems to be some other places that say the same thing. Now, after they record all these songs that are going to be sung after the battle is won, then in columns 15 through 19, this will finish it up because there's only 19 columns, the 15 through 19th column uh, actual talks about actually talks about the battle against the Katim again, and there are several highlights that I would like to point out here as well. First of all, this is a time of tribulation for Israel, but destruction for all the wicked nations. It mentions a time of tribulation. The word here is zara, uh, t z a r a h. Now that's the same word that's used for Yaakov's trouble in the book of Jeremiah. Tribulation, trouble for Israel. <clears throat> The king of Katim and the army of Belial are all together now, and this all involves the blowing of trumpets as well. Now, this is it's in columns 15 through 19 that we see that Michael is now involved in this battle. What I proposed in our Tears Among the Wheat series in identifying the restrainer is that it is Michael the archangel that comes and removes the restrainer out of the midst of the people. And this seems to be in perfect harmony once again when we get to the war scroll. It says in column 17 verses, or line 6 and 7, it says, and I quote, He has sent an everlasting help to the lot whom he has redeemed through the might of the majestic angel. He will set the authority of Michael in everlasting light. He will cause the covenant of Israel to shine in joy, peace, and blessing to the lot of God. And he will exalt over the divine beings, there's Baalim again, the service of Michael and the dominion of Israel over all flesh. Now once again, when we get to Revelation 12, in the uh, book of Revelation, we're also going to have Michael coming to the rescue again of Israel. I believe that what Michael does is remove the restrainer. I do not believe for one moment that the restrainer is Michael. I show very clearly and consistently, starting in the book of Genesis from the garden on, that what's being restrained in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is the wheat, not the tares. And then when the leader of the tares, that would be Belial here in this scroll, is removed out of the midst of them, then it's revealed as to who he is. He's no longer an, a, a ubiquitous spirit dwelling in our midst among us, deceiving, killing, and destroying. But now it's revealed as to who he is and that he will chase the woman into the wilderness. And you know what goes on from that point forward. And so it is with these, with the war scroll, Michael is involved in this battle coming to the rescue of Israel. 
The last column finishes with, and I quote, Daughters of my people, burst into a voice of jubilation. Deck yourselves with glorious ornaments. Have dominion over the kingdoms of your camps, and Israel shall reign forever. Now, why does he say, deck yourself with glorious ornaments? Because now it is time to go to the wilderness of Jerusalem. That phrase is used to refer to going into Jerusalem now for the wedding. The battles are over, and now we come to the wedding time. Now, that is basically the gist of the War Scroll. There is a lot of fascinating things in this scroll to go through. We have just covered, in detail, I believe, we covered the opening column of this War Scroll, and then we just kind of give the gist of the rest of it. But I want to draw a conclusion to some of the major themes of the scroll and to cite my purpose for even covering this subject. So some of you might be wondering... Why are we studying something that's not part of the scriptures? Why are we studying something that's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I want to reiterate that I believe that these writers of the scrolls, which probably were a sectarian group uh, like the Essenes, had some very clear insight into the prophecies of the latter days and that they're basing their understanding, their interpretations on the writings of the prophets. And nothing in this scroll pretends to be extra-biblical additions, uh, claims to be a part of the canon or anything like that. It's just clearly their interpretations of the scriptures as they see them in the latter days, living in the first century, probably before the Messiah came, or at least uh, just preceding that or perhaps through that as well. And so their biblical insight uh, was, I I believe, very keen. And I believe in perfect harmony with the way the scriptures do teach the end of days. Clearly, these people were not pre-trib. Clearly, they did not see the sons of light being removed from the sons of darkness, but rather the other way around. And so the major themes of this girl I want to repeat. Once again, it is clear that the difference between the sons of light and the sons of darkness is the difference between those who keep the covenants of, keep the covenant of our God, the marriage covenant, which includes the keeping of his commandments and statutes and ordinances, and those who do not. Sons of light, sons of darkness. Paul seems to continue this theme in his use of it in when we were talking about the difference between those of the Messiah and those of Belial and not to be unequally yoked and things like that. And in his letter to the Thessalonians and in his letter to the Corinthians, he seems to continue this theme. Yochanan. The, the gospel writer seems to also continue this theme, particularly in his epistles, but in his gospel as well. This theme of the difference between light and darkness is consistent throughout scripture. The Another major theme I mentioned earlier, the sons of darkness are destroyed from among the sons of light. The same thing that Yeshua teaches in the parable of the wheat and the tares. At the end, the location seems to shift from the wilderness of the peoples, Hosea 2.14, to the wilderness of Jerusalem, which I believe is a reference to the wedding supper, where there will be much jubilation and wedding-like joy taking place. Another major theme seems to be that all twelve tribes seem to be reunited at this time, whereas during the time that the Essenes lived, the twelve tribes were still scattered throughout the nations. They were not all in the land at one time. And there seems to be a clear and consistent connection and comparison to the first exodus. They seem to see, is what I'm saying, that in the latter days, 
at this time that there will be the same kind of things going on at the end as there was in the first Exodus and that the sons of darkness at the end seem to be a mingling of the east and the west coming together at the end of the end of days to fight one common foe that would be you and I the seed of the woman and they see, it seems historically that many of the east and the west have fought against each other over time but in the end they will they will unite the east will unite with the west i believe jump on the back the west will jump on the back of the east that's my personal belief in order to stand against the Messiah in the latter days. I believe also that the leader of the armies of the darkness, a character called Belial, will also be mingled. I believe the nature of the beast and the anti-Messiah, whatever you want to call these characters, the bad guy, is not pure evil. I think it's a mistake to be looking for someone who is pure evil. I think it's a mistake to look for someone who is purely East, i.e. Islam i.e. Muslim, and so forth. I think it's a mistake to look for him as being purely from the West, i.e. the Holy Roman Empire, uh, someone from Greece, something, some, uh, someone from America even. I think that whoever this character is, he will be a mixture of the two. He will seem on one hand to be very um, defensive, if you will, of Christianity and its tenets, and will also stand behind uh, Islam, uh, stand behind all the other, uh, what he will consider to be the legitimate religions of the world, and try un- to unite them all together into what we ostensibly call one world religion, one world order. That's the whole point of this, is for all of these to become one. And that's what we have to be so very sensitive to and discerning in these latter days in that what seems to happen scripturally is that there's chaos throughout the centuries from the fall of Adam and Chavah or Adam and Eve until the end of times there seems to be chaos as to who the good guys and who the bad guys are from one war from one skirmish to the next but in the end times there will be a clear distinction between the sons of light and the sons of dark darkness and the sons of darkness will unite and the sons of light will begin to unite and clearly, these are the things that need to be one. We need to be one in the Messiah as the sons of light because they will be one in the God of Cain, Ishmael, and Esau to fight against Israel. And so I'd like to close by uh, quoting a series of verses here. There's about uh, 16 of them here. This is what I would like to close with. We've, we've quoted from several of these as we have gone along. And it's from Jeremiah chapter 33. 1 through 16. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the maker of it, Yahweh who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. For thus saith Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the siege mounds and by the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men, whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury, and because all whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Behold, I will bring in health and cure, I will cure them, and I will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and I will build them as it was at the first. 
And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities in which they have sinned and in which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, of praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good I do unto them and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Thus saith Yahweh, again there shall be heard in this place which you shall say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of, Jeru- of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. For the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them who shall say, Praise the Yahweh of hosts. Praise Yahweh is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of Yahweh, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as it as it was at the first, saith Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Again in this place which is desolate without man and without beast, and in all its cities shall be a habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that counted them, saith Yahweh. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised into the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name by which she shall be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Simply said, those of us who choose to follow our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have nothing to fear. He will take care of us. He will watch over us. He will bring us through all these trials that are ahead of us because we are going to go through trials. Not only do we see that happening now, we see that scripturally, and this war scroll attests to the same thing that we see in the scriptures. For be assured that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So we go back to the days of Noah and those who were complete in him, who found grace in his eyes, he took care of in the midst of the flood. And the same in the days of Moses, when they were coming out in the first exodus, so shall it be when there is another and a greater exodus to take place as well. For Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. For Yahweh shall fight for you, and he shall hold your peace. Be assured. I hope this study in this war scroll was something that, that not just blessed you, but, but gave you some a further insight into how they felt about the latter days. Once again, I want to remind you that I'm not saying that this is scripture. I'm not saying that these guys are even right. I just think that they seem to have some insight that I think will help us in the latter days as well. So I hope it was a blessing and I hope it was informative to you as well. In the meantime, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. Shalom. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before.